Well, as we open up in prayer this morning to pray for the sermon, um, also because it's the 4th of July, I'd like to just take a moment also to quickly pray for our country. So if you would bow with me, let's pray. Father, this week our country will be celebrating its 242nd birthday. We're so thankful for the United States of America, the country that you have given to us to live in. You know, in many ways it's a great nation, but we're also aware of the many serious problems and flaws that we have. As citizens, you've commanded us to pray for our leaders. So Lord, would you give our leaders wisdom, strength, and guidance to carry out their many responsibilities? We pray for unity in the midst of diversity and for a turning back to you. We pray, Lord, that our many churches and the pulpits of the land will unashamedly proclaim the gospel message. We pray for the preservation of the family as ordained by you. And Lord, we praise you that more than a million believers gathered recently on May 2nd to pray for our nation. We know from the Bible that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. So Lord Jesus, forgive us for our sins and revive us again that we may bring glory to your name. And it's such a privilege this morning, once again, Lord, to gather at your table to remember the incredible sacrifice that you made on our behalf. So I pray over the next few minutes as we open up your word that we will see you as you truly are, that you will give us that vision like you did of Isaiah of your holiness. And Lord, may we hear from you today a word from you. It's in your mighty name we pray, amen, amen. Well, let me start my message this morning by asking you a series of questions. What's your normal reaction to the troubling events that are going on in our society right now? As you witness the breakdown of the family, what goes through your mind? As you see the horrific images of violence on TV, how do you respond? How do you deal with the anger and the strife we see all around us? How do you deal with the change that's going on in our culture at a breakneck speed? What's your response to the lack of civility and lawlessness that seems to pervade our land? Does the apparent dysfunction in the government at every level disturb you? Well, if you're like me, I'm sure you feel a certain sense of anxiety and apprehension about the future. It's at times like this, my friends, you need to be reminded of a soul-stabilizing truth in God's inspired word, and that's found in Psalm 11, three and four. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple, the Lord is on his heavenly throne, he observes the sons of men, his eyes examine them. It's at these tough times we need to look up and realize that God is still on his throne. In Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah is anxious about the state of affairs because a great king had just passed away. It's in this context he receives a vision of a holy God on his throne. Although he's mindful of his own sinfulness and the wickedness of his people, 
God reassures him of his forgiveness and commissions him to service. As we're gonna see in this passage, our vision of God's holiness determines how we worship and how we behave. So if you have your Bible, we're gonna look at Isaiah chapter six, the entire chapter, and we're gonna just begin here by looking at verse one, the vision of the holy God. First of all, there's the earthly setting. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah received his vision in the year that King Uzziah died. King Uzziah was one of Judah's greatest kings. He reigned 52 years from the year 790 to 740 BC. He was a good king and he had a long and prosperous reign. In 2 Chronicles 26, it tells us he extended the borders of Judah. He rebuilt Jerusalem and he equipped a powerful army with new weapons. In fact, in that passage it says his fame spread far and wide for he was greatly helped until he became powerful. He did have a mishap at the end of his life, however, where he allowed his pride to deceive him and he carelessly went into the temple, which only the priests are allowed to do, and as a result, he got leprosy, and he died a leper. When Isaiah received his vision, it was a significant year. It was the end of an era. It was the year that King Uzziah died. It'd be like us saying, in the year Abraham Lincoln died, or in the year Franklin Roosevelt died, or in the year Billy Graham died. It was the end of an era. Well, look at the heavenly vision he had of God on the throne. He's highly exalted. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Kylan Dalish, who are renowned Old Testament commentators, state Isaiah receives a vision, an ecstatic vision, probably carried up into heaven. Other men in the Bible had similar experiences. John relates his experience in Revelation 4, 2 and 3. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Isaiah saw the Lord, the true king, the Lord of all, seated on a throne. Some believe this was a theophany, a vision of the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus because in John 12, 41, the apostle John wrote, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Isaiah had seen Jesus' glory. In this vision, he sees the Lord high and exalted. There's no other, there's no one that's greater than God, no one. No one higher, no one more exalted. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 57, 15. For this is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly of spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Psalm 99, two and three says, great is the Lord in Zion. He is exalted over all the nations Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. 
And we're told that in his vision, he saw that the train of his robe filled the temple. This speaks of his majesty and his royalty. You know, the high priest wore a full-length robe when he was in the Holy of Holies. John's vision of Jesus in Revelation 1.13 states, he was dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. Queen Elizabeth on her coronation day in 1953 had a large train on her robe. I think there's a picture of it up here. It speaks of majesty, it speaks of royalty and greatness. And notice, he's declared holy by heavenly beings. First of all, in verse two, the seraphs. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. The seraphs mentioned here are angelic beings, possibly the highest rank of angelic beings. This is the only place in the entire Bible where they're mentioned. The NIV Study Bible points out the Hebrew word underlying the word seraph means burn, symbolic of the purity of those who ministered to God. We learn something about the holiness and majesty of God by the way these angelic beings behave. Again, Kylan Dalish note, each has six wings. With two they flew, hovering like hummingbirds around the throne of God. With two they covered their faces in awe of the divine glory. These angelic beings who were perfect in purity could not gaze upon the glory of God without covering their faces. That shows you how great God is. And it says, with two they covered their feet, demonstrating as creatures how low they were below the most holy one. Remember what God said to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3, 5? Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. John also had a vision of angelic beings around the throne of God in Revelation 5, 11 to 14. You may wanna read that at a later time. And notice they were calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. They probably weren't saying holy, 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 holy. They were antiphonally saying holy, and then back, holy, and then holy, three times, possibly in reference to the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There are several other places, though, in Scripture where something is repeated three times. It's a number of completion. He is ultimate in holiness. The angels were declaring that God alone is holy. There is no one like him. Listen to some of the definitions of God's holiness. Kyle and Dalish say God is in himself the Holy One, Kadosh, the separate one, beyond or above the world, true light, spotless purity, the perfect one. His glory, Kabod, is his manifested holiness. Arthur Pink says holiness is the very excellency of divine nature. The great God is glorious in holiness. Stephen Charnock says, power is God's hand or arm, omniscience is eye, mercy is bowels, eternity is duration, but holiness is his beauty. Wayne Grudem says, God's holiness means that he is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. 
And notice the seraphim declare that God is perfectly holy and that the whole earth is full of his glory. People, God's glory is displayed throughout the world for people to see. Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Psalm 19.1 states, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. And Psalm 46.10 says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. When the angels declared God's holiness, it says the temple shook and was filled with smoke. There were other occasions when God's holy power was manifested. Do you remember on Mount Sinai in the wilderness in Exodus 19, 16 to 19? We're told that as the people gathered before the mountain, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud over the mountain. It was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The whole mountain trembled violently. The dedication of Solomon's temple in 1 Kings 8, 10, and 11, we read, when the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. It was an awesome sight that Isaiah had. So what was his response? A confession of sinfulness. Verse five. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. When Isaiah saw God in all of his holiness and majesty, he was undone. He said, woe to me. The King James says, woe is me. Some believe that his horse's name was Ismi because he said, woe is me, woe is me. <laughs> but I don't think that's accepted by the best scholars. Well, in contrast to God's awesome holiness, he knew he was a sinful man and he lived among sinful people. You know, in the previous chapter, Isaiah said this. Isaiah 5.20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Does that sound familiar? You see, for the Old Testament saint to come into the presence of a holy God was not only terrifying, it could be lethal. For example, Exodus 33:20, when Moses requested to see God's glory, the Lord responded, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. In Genesis 32:30, after Jacob wrestled with the angel, he said, it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. In Job 42, five and six, Job's reaction to the holy God was, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you, therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Ezekiel 128, Ezekiel had a vision of God and testified, when I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. When Peter witnessed the miracle of the catch of the fish 
In Luke 5, 8, it says, he fell at Jesus' knees and he said, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. And in Revelation 1:17, when John had a vision of Jesus in heaven, he stated, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. You know, we tend to take sin lightly. God doesn't take sin lightly. One sin can separate you from God forever. He's a holy God. Kylan Dalish said the infinite distance between the creature and the creator is sufficient of itself to produce a prostrating effect. People, when we come into God's presence and we see him for who he is, the holy God, we too will acknowledge our sinfulness. After David committed the sins of adultery and murder, he finally acknowledged his sin to God in Psalm 51, 3 and 4. He said, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. So what did God do when he saw his prophet knowing that he's sinful? Confessing his sin, he cleansed him through atonement. Look at verse six and seven. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. One of the seraphs took a coal from the altar. What's the significance of the burning coal? Well, on the Day of Atonement in ancient Israel, God instructed them what to do in Leviticus 16, the 11, 16. In Leviticus 16, the high priest would offer sacrifices for sin, and then he would take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. He put the incense on the fire before the Lord. Through this and subsequent sacrifices, he would make atonement for himself and the community. So in this vision in heaven, the angelic being took a coal from the heavenly altar to atone for Isaiah's sins. The angel said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Remember what Jesus said? The mouth speaks that which fills the heart. He touches lips. Although he was unclean because of his sins, his guilt was taken away because God atoned for his sins. David wrote in Psalm 32, 5, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Our sins are atoned for by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And when we have communion in a few minutes, we're gonna be remembering that. Hebrews 10, 11 to 14, listen to what it says. Day after day, every priest stands and performs the, his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Amen. 
The Apostle John gives us this wonderful promise. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I love the words of the old hymn we sang this morning by Robert Lowry. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen. And then notice there's a call of God in verse eight. Look at it. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? God extends a call for service. He says, who will go for us? This again could refer to the triune God or it could refer to the council of angels that are with God, which in Revelation 5.11 tells us there are about 100 million angels encircling the throne of God. He asks, who will go for us? And Isaiah responds at the, in verse eight again. And I said, here am I, send me. Note that it was after Isaiah's cleansing from sin that he received the call. Isaiah, with gratitude, answers in the affirmative, here am I, send me. Perhaps the Lord is calling you to do something today, this week, this month, this year. When the prophet Samuel received the calling, he responded, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. I've mentioned before, the Hebrew word for listening means listening with an intent to obey. When God speaks to you, you say, I hear it, I'm gonna do it. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, 16, you didn't choose me, I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Paul, with gratitude, wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. God puts us in service. When I graduated from UC Davis way back in the dark ages, I worked several years for Campbell Soup Company as a sales specialist. During that time, I received from the Lord a call to the ministry. God used my circumstances to get my attention. Have you ever tried to sell chicken noodle soup in the deserts of Nevada in August? It's not easy. <laughs> I sensed God calling me, but for several reasons I was resisting it. Like Isaiah, I finally said, here am I, send me, and the rest is history. God miraculously provided everything I need for seminary. I had enough money left over to buy my wife's wedding ring. And for more than 35 years, he has supported me in my ministry for him. And about half of that time has been here at Golden Hills. In the foreword to his book, Daniel Henderson, in his book, Transforming Presence, Pastor H.B. Charles writes, I am reminded of the story of a group of pastors who had planned a citywide evangelistic campaign. The pastors favorably discussed the possibility of inviting the famous preacher D.L. Moody to be the speaker. But one young pastor complained, from the way some of you talk, you would think Mr. Moody had a monopoly on the Holy Spirit. No, another pastor replied, Mr. Moody does not have a monopoly on the Spirit, but the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on Mr. Moody. 
See, Daniel goes on to remind us later in his book, the question is not how much of the Holy Spirit do you have because we all have the Holy Spirit. All believers have the Holy Spirit in full. The question is not how much of the Holy Spirit do you have, but how much of you does the Holy Spirit have? The Holy Spirit motivates our behavior. Our behavior does not manufacture the Holy Spirit. So what is, call, what is God calling you to do today, my friend? Are you willing to say to him, here am I, send me? Second Chronicles 16, 9. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And I want you to see that the message that he has from God is not an easy message. It will not be received. Verse 9. He said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. God was sending Isaiah to an obstinate and rebellious people bent on evil. His message would not be well received. In fact, it would, be, it would harden them more. Jesus quotes this passage in his famous parable of the sower. Note the chiastic literary device commonly used in the Old Testament. He starts with the heart, then goes to the ears, and then the eyes, and then the eyes, and then the ears, and then the hearts. It's chiastic literary device to get their attention. Kylan Dalish comment, it's not only the loving will of God which is good, but also the wrathful will into which his loving will changes when determinately and obstinately resisted. There is a self-hardening in evil which renders a man thoroughly incorrigible and which, regarded as the fruit of his moral behavior, is no less a judicial punishment inflicted by God than self-induced guilt on the part of man. The two are bound up in one another inasmuch as sin from its very nature bears its own punishment, which consists in the wrath of God excited by sin. You're gonna go and you're gonna, you're gonna speak, but they're not gonna listen. In fact, they're gonna get more hardened. And it's gonna result in judgment, verses 11 and 12. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. Isaiah asked the Lord, how long would this go on? He loved his people. He didn't want to see them destroyed. God told him the people would go into exile for their sin. And that's exactly what happened in the year 586 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, taking the people into exile because they wouldn't listen to God. But it's, it's rooted in hope. There's hope here. Look at verse 13. I think I have a picture up here too. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and the oak leaf stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. The tree coming out of the stump. People, no matter how bad things are, there's always hope because God works through those who respond to him. Listen to what the Life Application Bible says about these verses. 
In 6.13, God explains his plan for a remnant, a holy seed of faithful followers. God is merciful even when he judges. We can gain encouragement from God's promise to preserve his people. If we are faithful to him, we can be sure of his mercy. When would the people listen? Only after they had come to the end and had nowhere to turn but to God. This would happen when the land was destroyed by invading armies and the people taken into captivity. What about the remnant he's talking about? Well, one of the kings taken to Babylon was the son of King Josiah named Jehoiakim. 37 years into the Babylonian captivity, we read what happened to him in 2 Kings 25, 27 to 30. Listen to what happened. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the year evil Merodach became king of Babylon, he released Jehoiakim from prison on the 27th day of the 12th month. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honor higher than those of other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day, the king gave Jehoiakim a regular allowance as long as he lived. After the Babylonian captivity, it was Jehoiakim's great-grandson Zerubbabel who returned to the land to rebuild the temple. God had preserved a remnant. He's always true to his word. The Life Application Bible says, when, we, when, when will we listen to God? Must we, like Judah, go through calamities before we will listen to God's words? Consider what God may be telling you and obey him before time runs out. So people, as we prepare for communion this morning, let us remember we serve a holy God. I think Pastor Charles Stanley said it best, true reverence of the Lord's holiness and power purifies the church and helps us to live in submission to him. The Apostle Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 1, 13 to 21, which shows how a knowledge of God's holiness affects us, but also that Jesus has redeemed us. Listen to what Peter said. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed that is coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so, and so your faith and hope are in God. Amen, amen. Will you bow with me in prayer? Lord, we know that you are a holy God and we would never be able to stand in your presence for one second if you didn't provide for us. But as we gather around the communion table today, we remember that our Lord Jesus, the God-man, our Savior and mediator, gave his life for us 
so that we could be cleansed, so we could have his righteousness, so we could come to you. So Lord, as we take the elements today, we do it with reverence and with love and with appreciation for who you are and what you have done. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.